You're listening to Make It, a podcast by Bonsai Creative that helps aspiring professionals in film get where they're going faster by dissecting the advice, knowledge, and insights of professional creatives in the film industry. I'm your host, Chris Barkley, and with me today is my good friend and Make It podcast co-host, Nicholas Bugs. Chris here with another episode of the Make It Podcast, and this week is an Indie Talk week, and that means I have my co-founder and good friend, Nicholas Bugs, with me here on the call. Nick, say hello. Hello, Christopher. (laughs) It's wonderful to be on the call with you today. Unfortunately, your friend, Nicholas Bugs, is incapacitated, for I... Bane, I'm here to talk to your guests, your audience, the people. Bane, is the fire rising? Ha! The fire has risen! (laughs) (laughs) Whether I get Nick or whether I get Bane, I think it's going to be a great talk today, my friend, because... Got it, man. You got it. We, we are going to talk about some fun things. We're going to talk about guilty pleasures and what they're really all about. We're going to talk about the final chapter of Quibi. We've had this Quibi conversation really for the entirety of this year. And let's talk about where they went wrong and why it aligns with independent film and, and what indie filmmakers can do to avoid this kind of fate. We want to talk about the viability of film festivals. Uh, how many should you try to get into if you have a film? feature or short or anything documentary, how many should you try to get get into? What kinds should you get into? And what should you expect once you get into to a film festival from a distribution standpoint? Let's talk about the new world of data and analytics as well with film categorization uh, on streaming services and how they're redefining that and how independent filmmakers and creatives can leverage that. And then I think we'll, we'll wrap up with um, some ancillary topics around theatrical comps and why those may no longer be viable. You got anything else, Nick? Really, dude? That's a lot right there, man. I'm not going to add any more to the plate. I don't think we should. For like 47 hours, man. I don't think we should. This could be a two-hour indie talk. It's just just (laughs) that important. Right. We have to do it. Um, Yes, there's a lot. There's a lot going on. It is. It is. And I wanted to talk about this concept of guilty pleasures because uh, one of the biggest hits of the year was, was Tiger King. And I think a lot of people, when we talk to them, say, oh, I didn't even watch it. Or they'll say, I watched it. I watched it. And maybe, regrettably, they shake their head. They're a little bit ashamed. But but I wonder why. And I think I kind of know why. I mean, I know the social reason why. And it's because of the people, the characters involved in the series. But one thing that most guilty pleasures have is they have a great story and there's a reason why you keep coming back to it. And obviously this extends beyond uh, film. Uh, you know, you could have a guilty pleasure that's music. Uh, like I don't necessarily just want to say out loud that one of my favorite road trip songs is work bitch by Britney Spears. That's not something I share with people. And because just, no one's going to, well, no, one's, no one, no one's listening. <laughs> 
No one, <laughs> no one heard that. But there's just something about "Work, Bitch" by Britney Spears when you're on the road that that's perfect, and, <laughs> and it's a <laughs> and it's a guilty pleasure. But why is it guilty? And why is it a pleasure? And that's what we want to talk about. So when it comes to shows right now, I would say my guilty pleasure, if I had one, would probably be the Great British Baking Show. Okay, so let's talk about it. You know, that's that's one of those that I think a lot of people give a you know five star rating to. It's like one of the top shows. You know, what's so guilty about it, Chris? I think because there's it's it's, it's English, and it's uh, cupcakes and cakes and and all, all sorts of different types of uh, baking. And I'm supposed to be a, a manly man from the south that uh, is sort of watching it in an ancillary way while someone else in my household is watching it. Like I seek it out and then they get mad at me for getting ahead of them on the episode count. Right. So you're sitting there, you're sitting there in front of the TV going cakes and pies, cakes and pies. <laughs> and that's not an shake, image shake that you're trying hand, to put out there. Shake my hand, Paul Hollywood. Um, you're right. <laughs> yeah. That's what I want. And I want Prue to give me that face that says, you know, there, I have, I, we have some friends that say that when Prue eats a bite of something she likes, that she kind of makes a face that says, would you fancy a fuck in the closet? That's, that's, <laughs> wow. the, that's right. the face that she makes when she really likes something you baked. And it's a guilty pleasure um, nice. for, that, for that reason. But that's an image thing, isn't it, Nick? Yeah, for sure, man. That's just, you know, you're, you're trying to keep up whatever that image is. And, you know, like you said, the great British baking show or Tiger King just doesn't fit that image. It's like for me, it's like just... I don't know, like all reality TV kind of fits in that bucket. You know, I get that there's some that do stand above the rest and may even stand the test of time, like the great British baking show. Um, but like all of it's pretty much just like, like the reality TVs in a big bucket for me. And if I watched any of it, I think that I would probably say it was a guilty pleasure. And I'm not a big fan. I don't, I don't watch, you know, reality TV. I think the closest I get to reality TV is actually like documentary, you know, or documentary type stuff. Um, so that's, that's the closest, but I wouldn't even call that a guilty pleasure. You know, it's like, I feel like I'm getting educated every time I watch a documentary, mm-hmm. you know? So I don't know, you know, I don't go, you know me, I don't go through a lot of content. Um, but I, I'll say this. Okay. So inside my household, so not like an outside thing, because I don't care, right? Outside, I'm like, whatever, I'll tell you what I watch. But inside my household, I think I'd have to say like guilty pleasure is like anime, mm. right? And the reason why that's like a guilty pleasure inside my house is because like my wife doesn't watch like anything that's a cartoon, right? Right? Like she'll watch Disney stuff for the kids and stuff, but like she's not into cartoons. So just the idea of me watching a series that's like an adult cartoon for her. Just like, like, what are you doing? Like, you know, like that's, that's not a thing. That's like, what are you watching a cartoon? I'm like, yeah, I'm no. watching a cartoon. I'm watching Kenga Nashura. Like what's up <laughs> it's on Netflix. All right. Season two. I'm waiting for season three to come out. You know, like that. I think that would be my, uh, my guilty pleasure. When I met you, you used to watch Bruce Lee films with your shirt off. Hey man, because you know, <laughs> while you're watching the movie, you gotta do push-ups. Like, like how can you watch Bruce Lee? You know, like 
you know, just tight, you know, like everything about dude is like muscle, you know, and lean muscle. I'm going to sit there and do push-ups, <laughs> you know, I'm going to do upside, upside, I'm going to do upside down push-ups. You know? <laughs> I, I love that you cat. he put his muscle type in a category. <laughs> yeah, man. It's, it's, oh, lean it's muscle, not just dude. muscle, I'm serious. It's lean yeah. Muscle. I mean, look, you see, you seen that dude, man. Like it's just crazy, you know? So, oh, for sure. Yeah. You know, so but that that's what gets me with the um with I will say with the anime, that's a lot of what I watch is martial arts related anime. And, you know, my wife even like looks at me even more cross-eyed because, you know, I'm watching that sucker in straight Japanese. Like I don't want it dubbed. You know, I'd rather read the subtitles. You want the pure and hear uncut. Them, you, you want know, that narcos yeah. version. Yeah, man, I want that. I want that deep. And I'm like, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, don't, I, I wish I could speak it, but man, I just get them feels, you know. So yeah, that's that's where I'm at. That's my guilty yeah, pleasure. Yeah, but it, it is. It's a verse. It's 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 this balance between your image and maybe your morals and maybe like what you think of yourself. You know, people will say like like every guy friend of mine will somehow know what's happening with Kim Kardashian. But none of them watch Keeping Up with the Kardashians. Well, how's that possible? I'll watch it with my, I'll watch it with my wife. I'll watch it with my girlfriend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just I'll be around. She's watching it. I'll, I'll I'm just around. You know, <laughs> it's like well, okay, yeah, okay, yeah, whatever, okay. Dog. I think you're watching. Whatever, dog. It. I think you're yeah, watching. You're it. watching it. You're watching it. Yeah. And so just you know, so my wife has a couple of those that she watches every once in a while. And for me. I'm usually doing something else. And it's one of those, like, you can get drawn in. I'm not going to lie. Like, I've, I've, I remember, like, I was, like, she was watching something and then she fell asleep. You know, I came upstairs after working and I was like, I'm going to go take a shower. So I'm like, got the shower running, you know, got to get all warm and stuff. And, you know, I'm, I'm ready to go in the shower and I keep peeking, mm-hmm. right? Like the TV's on, they're talking about some foolishness. I keep peeking. Like next thing you know, it's like water's been on for like 10 minutes and I'm looking at the screen and this foolishness is on TV and I'm just mad at myself, you know, like, what am I doing? But this is most of the time okay, so I'm not watching. I'm doing something else. <laughs> this is the point, whatever. First of all, second of all, this is the entire point of the topic, which is that I think what independent filmmakers, what we do and what we do as creative sometimes is we say, we don't want to make a product that's someone's guilty pleasure. We don't want to make something that people are going to be sort of suspect to admit that they watch or listen to. But so much of that has to do with the individual's morals or what they view of themselves or the image. You know, if, if, if I weren't a guy and a, and a black guy at that, let's just put it out there. I might not mind saying that, uh, you know, I listened to, you know, 1989 by Taylor Swift on repeat. Like, but I don't want to say that. (laughs) <laughs> because I have an right, image I've right. created for myself externally. I know for you, it's more about morally what you should you be watching or, or you know, your sort of self image and the way you police and the discipline, police yourself and the discipline you have around that. But the point is, is that a lot of guilty pleasures are really just great stories that may not be made for everybody, but if it's a great story, the story will win. Yeah. Yeah. And I think so. I think that's that, that execution. And I think the, you know, uh, the slight differentiator or qualifier that I would offer to the great story uh, is because, you know, when you watch some of these, um, you know, reality TV, look at like, really, is that a great story? Well, it's compelling. Mm-hmm. Right. And one could argue that they could be one of the same. 
right? Is that it's a compelling story. If you want to know what happens next, you might have to give it to them, right? You might have to say, this is a great story, you know, and we know from our experience that a lot of these reality shows are actually scripted, right? So the fact that someone's working behind the scenes to develop the script to keep you hooked, that's, that's great yeah. writing, right? That's, that's, you, it's a great story, like you just said, but it's, you know, the, so the part where I try to, I try to separate them a little bit is just say that, yeah, it's a compelling story uh, because sometimes I feel like I want to reserve greatness for, you know, things that aren't reality TV, right? Not just salacious and it's sometimes nonsensical or don't meet, you know, my principles and values. I kind of reserve that great story to just like the quality of the work and something that's kind of transcends the foolishness that we, we have going on day to day. But, but yeah, you're right. That's what it is. It's story. And that's what drives people to watch it. Um, but that's what I think. I can't tell you how many I've seen. I know you've seen a lot too, Nick as well, but we get a lot of short films to review, even short scripts. This happens a lot in short films and uh, it can happen in features too, but we'll see where the independent creative and, and filmmaker creative has sort of got themselves backed into a corner based on the image they have for themselves or their own principles, where instead of just telling the story that's in front of them, they told this really abstract story or they told a story in which the protagonist doesn't talk uh, or, you know, the, the guy I love with all my heart, Scott Kimbrey, who got me into f- the love of filmmaking, his short film that he made off the bat, he, he wanted it to be like, you know what I mean? Like he, he didn't want it to be something that everybody could understand on purpose. And, and by the end of it, you have a guy that's, you know, biting a giant boil off his shoulder. And it's like, that's not. <laughs> what are we doing here? <laughs> like it would have been better just to right. go back and yeah, tell yeah. a story, but you were afraid to tell a story because everybody just tells a story. And I think that if you're listening to this, I think our message to you is, is first of all, just tell a great story and don't worry about being trite. Don't worry about being conventional. We're not saying borrow from someone else's playbook, but we're saying whatever the story is you have to tell, make sure you have a good story to tell first. And don't just try to say, well, well, I'm not like this show or that show or this director or that director or this writer or that writer uh what we're going to have is um you know you know we're going to shoot this in um uh with red with a red jelly over the camera the whole time <laughs> our protagonist isn't going to speak yeah. and at the end of it uh there will be a random person that gets bludgeoned that was not introduced and it's just like, <laughs> and that's going to be totally original and badass, right? So that, right. that's, yeah. that's the yeah. key there. So let's talk a little bit about Quibi. Quibi, Nick, closed its doors. It was looking for a buyer. And I don't know if that door is completely shut. It feels completely shut. But they're looking for someone to buy it. And there's a lot of lessons to learn from it. And we had sort of been tracking Quibi all along because – Here's an idea that seems like it should have really worked, Nick. It should have been a runaway success, and yet it was not. Um, Here you have the best possible opportunity uh, because for streaming services, COVID has been a small blessing. And so Quibi said, hey, let's go ahead and launch right here. This is perfect. Everybody's at home. But they didn't quite understand their audience, did they? No, and I think it's... 
you know, I think that's probably the, the, the secret that I think a lot of people don't know about this, that it, that it came down to audience and understanding, you know, what we always talk about, which is the, the current zeitgeist, you know, like who's watching what type of content and where, mm-hmm. you know? So, you know, as, as you and I discussed about, you know, this one is like, okay, what was Quibi selling? You know, what was the product? You know, so it's not just the content, right? It's just the way that they did it. So it's this short form content. How, how long are the episodes? Was it five 10 to, to 12 minutes. minutes? Something like that? Short form, Five to yeah. 10 minutes. So, yeah, so you're selling this short form content, five to 10 minutes. Okay. And the design was that you watch it on your phone. Okay. So I guess who's watching con- who's watching short form content on their phone? And as we talked about, that's what? Mm-hmm. Kids, yeah. right? I mean, what's... What's the age group I mean, for that? I mean, that's... 12 to 17, but it's more likely something like 7 to 17. It, right, right. And I was going to write, that's the good spot, right? 7 to 17 are watching short form content on their phones. Okay. So you have 7, seven, seven to 17. Well, 7 to 17 year olds don't really have money. Right. So they're not the ones jumping to get the subscription for the content. They're going to have adults, right? Parents who are the ones who have to buy this content. But was the content itself actually geared towards seven to seventeen-year-olds? Yeah, I don't know how much of it was. I, you know, I don't, I don't think too much of it was. I think there was a lot of stuff geared towards right. the Snapchat crowd and the TikTok crowd. I think, I don't think they understood how much competition that was going to be. As a, you know, TikTok is addictive. Like when you get on there, it is so entertaining. There's really no reason to leave it. And when you have a great big Snapchat group, you know, you're going to be on that all the time because I know we're going to get pushback, Nick, about, well, come on, 18 to 25 year olds are watching short form content on their phone a lot too. Kind of, yes. But how many 18 to 25 year olds have established their life and can afford another subscription on top of whatever their parents probably have already subsidized them with? Right, but even five to ten, right? Five to ten is is a world apart from yes. TikTok, right? You could watch, you know, again, a, a kid watching TikTok or anyone watching TikTok can end up watching an hour's worth of content, but that's in what ten second yeah. bites. Yeah, I mean, you're, this is this is not five to ten minutes. So again, who's watching five to ten minute content? Is the age group we talked about. Why? Because the age group we talked about are watching free videos right. on YouTube, right? You put you're at a restaurant, you put your kid in front of YouTube, <laughs> right? Well, so, that's so, what you do, and they watch five. To, some hey, of us love you our know, children, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, right, <laughs> but many don't, right. right? So five to ten minutes, right? And that's what they're getting, but it's free, right? That content is already free, and that content is for them, right? You've curated like it, there's channels that you know you you can watch, and you know, okay, yeah, I'm cool with my kid, you know, flipping becoming a YouTube zombie for the next hour while we eat because I know that that channel is something that I can, you know, that's been vetted by the family kind of thing. But Quibi, I don't think they were putting out that type of content for that age group. And then secondly, the thing that you mentioned about was you know just paying for things. Right. So, again, if the parents are the ones paying for this stuff, you got to look at it and say, okay, well, what am I paying for? Right. Five to 10 minute shows about what? Right. How how does that fit the demographic or how does that fit for what I want my kids to watch? What upside do I have as a parent? I can't watch it with you. 
I would have to get my own subscription on my right. own phone. And that's where Quibi tried to pivot and, and allow you to watch it on TV so that mom and dad got some upside. And I actually think that strategy would have worked, but it was too late. The pivot was too late. And too then late. also yep. the way they spent on content, it really touches on things that we've talked about as foundational for the last five years, Nick, which is the star system is dead unless you have the top 15. Okay. So kids today don't necessarily care if you're a celebrity. Like that's that's not a big deal. Like there's, you know, there's TikTok celebrities, there's Snapchat celebrities, there's yep, YouTube right. celebrities, uh, there's Instagram celebrities. That's just as valuable as having, um, let's say, uh, an IMDb top 200, but not top 15 person in a show, right? And and so. Yep. You know, there's there's that. And then it goes back to what we said from the very, very beginning where we said we were disappointed. This is an Andy talk we had in March of this year, Nick, where we said, I'm really disappointed that Quibi isn't opening up its gates for indie creatives. And the reason why we were saying that is because and this is the reason why YouTube was such a problem for them. YouTube is not. This this. Um, aggregate of shitty videos, uh, shitty videos <laughs> posted by people across the globe. Although there are a lot of shitty videos posted by people across the globe. The top line of YouTube, <laughs> I mean, these are people shooting on reds. These are people with entire production crews. These are people with producers and agents and managers. Their content is every bit as good as any studio can make, except no one's the creator themselves is paying the expense for it. And so with Quibi, not only did they pay to get this content developed to the tune of $2 billion, but then they didn't own any of it. <laughs> and because they didn't own any of it, they can't sell their company. And so this is also a telltale sort of a warning shot to that. Here's Quibi that did the right thing by creators by letting them own their own content. I love that. But because the, business model didn't work out, we might not ever see that again. Yeah. And I think there's some other things that they did when they jumped into this game. Um, and again, I didn't watch any content on Quibi, so I don't know if they opened up this opportunity for some of their content creators, but the world that they were entering was actually where it's a world where we have, we foster relationships with the content creators. Mm -hmm. Right. So if you look at that five to 10 minute or even shorter, you know, I would say not just short form, but even micro content, those micro content developers uh, let you into their lives. Right. They have conversations with you. They invite you to be, you know, part of what they're doing. They invite you to be, uh, you know, even into things like polls and surveys and likes and follows and, you know, meet us here, meet us there. Like they're more accessible and grounded. And that is one of the things that, you know, micro content and short form content today really lets people in on. It creates relationships, even if those things are, they're not real, you know, like you're a follower, but you're not necessarily a friend, but you feel like yeah. you might be, yep. right? Like when, when you get to watch a family and they're playing with whatever toys they're playing with, with their kids and they're unboxing or whatever, you might actually feel a connection to the family dynamic. Right. Like you, you feel some sort of relationship with these folks, especially because you get to see them grow up. 
You know, you see them going on vacation, you get to see them buy a new house. Like you are somewhat invested in who they are as people. And that is something that I don't think that that Quibi actually was thinking about when they got into the short form game is that it's actually well beyond the content. And it's actually about creating and fostering relationships with the content creators. And I think this is one of the things that we talked about with independent filmmakers is that, you know, it's not just about, you know, your content that you create, but it's also about you, right? You're a significant part of the brand associated with your content. And if you're not inviting people into that brand, letting them get to, you know, let them get to know you and understand your journey and be a part of that, then it just, it's, it's much more difficult, right? You're not, you're not playing the right game. Right. You're, you're not you're not in the Hollywood game like you're not a competitor for them. Right. You need to be playing the content, the independent content creator game. And that game is really about having a relationship with your audience. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. And one of the interesting things that Quibi did, and I don't know what the success of it was. And full disclosure here, Dick, I know you didn't sign up for Quibi. I did. So I signed up because I wanted to to see what it was, see what it was all about, explore the content, explore the application so I could speak about it from a first person sort of perspective. The app worked okay. I thought it was good. It, it, it had a scroll feature that I thought worked really well that got you into new content immediately. I think I watched all the uh, reboot of Punked with uh, Chance the Rapper as the host. Uh, and you're watching it on your phone. And it kind of, it, once you're in it, it, it feels good. But, you know, there wasn't... It wasn't a whole lot there to say, okay, well, let me just try this out. But the commitment is low. So it's like, well, I'll try this out. And if I don't like it, it'll be over in five minutes anyway. But one of the interesting things that they did was they brought in uh, podcast creators and made a show out of uh, out of that. Uh, so there was a there's a podcast called The Nod, and they made a show out of The Nod. I think it's with Brittany Luce. And the cool thing about that is they brought their audience with them to Quibi. So here's a very popular podcast. They bring their audience to Quibi with them. And it's a big gamble for them because it has to work out. But it's a really smart move for Quibi. And I would have liked to see them do more of that as well. Take existing things that already work and bring them over to Quibi, similar to how Narcos is going to Pluto TV now. So that all the people that love Narcos on Netflix, they're going to take that audience and move it to Pluto. And Pluto's not going anywhere because that's, you know, that's a, got a big backer. And that's freemium TV or, or, you know, linear TV as they call it. So that's what I think could have worked. They should have done a lot more of that. And yeah, it's, this is why everyone finds it so difficult. Vimeo others to compete with YouTube because they have the engagement part down. They have the social media part down. They have the curation, the algorithms, um, the community. And then they have these content creators that they've made millionaires out of. Yeah. And, you know, there is a big thing about being, you know, first to market. And then I'll, I'll offer another thing is that, you know, when you think about, you know, YouTube, you likely think about all things, right? It's, it's not, it's not one thing. Yeah, it's, it's all, all things. things. Yeah. It doesn't matter what you're looking for. You can find it on YouTube. Whereas a Vimeo, you might be thinking more about, you know, film, filmmakers, right? Like that's the type of thing you're going to get there. Mm -hmm. So if you're looking for filmmakers, you could go to Vimeo, but you know what? YouTube is all things. Yep. 
So the filmmakers are there too. Filmmakers are there. <laughs> you know, you so can you get can tutorials get, there. Right. I don't even know if people, yeah, I don't even so know if companies make tutorials anymore that aren't designed to go on YouTube. There's no point. There's no point to even print them. So th- yeah, yeah. So that's the thing, right? That's the difference, and I think that that's the uh, the the reason why. Well, one of the many reasons why YouTube has a leg up on on all of these other you know, you said streaming uh, or content platforms. Well, I'll wrap it on this. So Jeffrey Katzenberg, Meg Whitman, these are all-stars in business and film. I think that neither one of them are true creators of content. And I think that showed um, understanding story, how creators create, things like that. And then I think the second thing is, and this is going to sound cold, but I really don't mean it that way because I could be in the same boat. I just don't think they understood the audience and I just don't think they can relate to them at their ages and, and, and their experiences in life. I just don't think they have anything in common with, you know, the, the, the Midwestern 11 year old who has a household income of, you know, $65,000. I just don't think that even, I don't think that registers with them. And, and it was, it was tough, tough. So I do commend them for, for doing it. Because we need more ideas. We need more places for content to go. I'd like to see someone else take a swing at it and let the creators come in and create. Because that's the that's the fourth wave. Let the creators come in. Let them create. Um, and then um, let them get better and bring their audience with them. Um, speaking of letting creators create, we have um, attended four festivals, virtual festivals, back to back to back. And we probably had the opportunity to do six or seven because we have the West Washington Film Festival, I think, happening now. And then we have the Fayetteville Festival, I think, that could be happening. I don't know if they're going virtual or not. Do you know if they're doing that, Nick? No, I'm not. I actually was thinking about them just the other day and need to reach out. Yeah, so there's all these opportunities to do this festival virtually we did defy a film festival with the wonderful dicey wildman and sarah saturday uh we did naf so the nashville film festival we did film com uh with uh, andy van roon shout out to andy van roon and we did swift uh summit with the women in film and television shout out to linda evgen and the whole team there and uh we're panelists at that film festival but and they've been great. I love the networking. The networking is so unique at a virtual film festival. I think it's actually, it has the potential to be more productive because you can, if you have the balls to sort of speak up in these Zoom calls, you have 15, 20 people on a screen. Um, you can be the one that talks. You can brand yourself with 20 people at a time. You can throw your contact information in the chat or anything else, links to your projects in the chat, have everybody access it at one time. It's super efficient. You can't really do that at a physical film festival. It's kind of a different type of networking. You can't just say to 20 people, hey, come over here. I want to tell you about myself. I mean, you could, but it wouldn't work out, right? So <laughs> so with, with virtual film festivals, you can go really wide. And with in-person festivals, you can go really deep with one or two people. And that's something we always like to do is go really deep with one or two people, create super uh, sticky relationships. Uh, but with virtual, you can go wide, meet a lot of people at once. That being said, I don't know what the upside is 
for filmmakers that entered their films into a virtual film festival. I really do know what the upside is for the film festivals themselves. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't know what the upside is for the independent filmmaker or filmmakers in general entering their stuff outside of getting their stuff seen and maybe picking up some important laurels. And that, Nick, is where I wanted you to sort of speak about the next part, which is it really matters which festivals you get um, accepted into, doesn't it? Yeah. And I guess that's, you know, you get back to, you know, like, like what's the benefit and, you know, the way I look at that is, you know, what's your goal? You know, if your goal is to get, you know, an education, you know, from the panels and the speakers that are available, if your goal is to network with others, if your goal is to get your project seen and just get it out there, if your goal is to, you know, uh, be seen and known as a filmmaker through your Q and A's through the quality of your work, then I think that, you know, any film festival can offer you those things, mm-hmm. right? So it would be a good thing to go to one or many of them, depending on what your budget can handle, uh, to be a part of these things, you know, and, and whether it's a virtual world or not. But I think if your goal is to sell, then that's a totally different story. And that really comes down to, you know, where are films sold, right? And, you know, in, in, in my view, you know, films aren't sold at film festivals, they're sold at markets, right? So a lot of the top film festivals have markets attached. Like, that's the difference. You know, a lot of the film, the local film festivals that a lot of independent filmmakers get into, they're just festivals. Right. Right. Like, that's it. They're, it's not a market. Like, you, you shouldn't expect to get sold there to anyone that is you know, and I don't want to say not, you know, reputable, but anyone who will pay, go ahead and say it. Right. And I'll just put it that way. Say, you know, I'm just going to say, say it. anyone who will pay you're right. No, I'm just going to say, pay. Okay. right. Like if you're looking for someone to buy your film, then it's at a market, right? If you're looking for someone to distribute your film, then there is an opportunity to get picked up at one of these smaller festivals, right? You may never see a dollar, Right. But it can get distributed. Right. And I think there's right. an, opportunity, so I think that's the difference. an opportunity to meet someone who tells you they're going to pay you as well at these sort of ancillary festivals. I think that's on the periphery of the festivals are all these people who are who are sort of wannabes and and uh, sharks uh, and they see blood in the water with all these filmmakers who were starving for sort of acceptance and attention about the work they had. And it's a very pervasive thing and very insidious thing. Uh, oftentimes the festivals are paying their way into the festival. They're, they're, they're setting up their room and board. They're putting these people on panels. And th- some of these people's entire goal is to, is to aggregate your films, um, aggregate the films of, of independence across the country, use them, that intellectual property to, to fatten their own pockets and you may never see a dime. So I think if you have something that you think is great and that, that you're getting a lot of great feedback on, you owe it to yourself, I think, to go out to TIFF, um, you know, Toronto International Film Festival. You owe it to yourself to, to submit it to Venice. You owe it to yourself to submit it to NYFF. You know, you owe it to yourself to submit it to Telluride. You owe it to yourself to submit it to Con. You owe it to yourself to submit it to, you know, um, South, South by. by or like, you know what I'm saying? Like, like swing for the fences, um, LA film festival, like swing for the fences. And if none of those accept you, then I think that's a pretty good signal to what kind of film you might have and that you might need to change your plan. But I just don't think it's valuable, Nick, to enter 
you know, 10, 12 different festivals so that you can get a lot of laurels. Yeah. So the laurels, you know, that's another thing, right? Again, it's about your goals, right? So if your goal is to get sold, don't believe that, you know, 10 or even 20 laurels at these smaller film festivals are going to get you sold, right? Like that's, that's not how it works. Again, you get sold at a market, mm-hmm. right? So if you're, if, if that's the goal is to get sold, then the laurels are not going to help unless you, those laurels are attached to a festival that has a market. Uh, but if you're looking to stroke your ego, <laughs> right. And that's what you want, right. You want the accolades, right. Because there's, there is benefit to it in the long run. Yeah. Right. So there's, again, there's a difference in the goals, right? So if your goal is for the film itself, then again, the laurels don't make much of a difference, but if you're looking in the long run and you can say, you know, with your next film, right. The one that, you know, that you're going to work on to try to get it into one of the ones that, you know, one of the festivals Chris just mentioned, then going into that, right. Getting financing, getting cast and crew, potentially even getting into that next film festival. Well, you now have all the laurels behind your name. Right. So it kind of shows that, oh, wow, there were a bunch of people who thought, you know, he or she was something well, might, we might want to attach ourselves to this next project because this next project might be the next big thing, right? So that's the the only value that I see there to accruing laurels isn't necessarily for the individual project, but maybe as a as a career move. Yeah, and I think that's I think festivals that have markets attached to them are busier than ever. I mean, that's literally where Hulu, Amazon, and Netflix are going to buy all their properties. They're going to to film festivals, even virtual film festivals, and they're making those purchases, but there are markets there. So I think when you put your budget together and you have hopefully some marketing and branding spend or even contingency spend, you're going to use some of that to enter festivals, but also use some of that to potentially scout sales reps that can take your film to different markets and has experience in those markets. Um, the, The bottom line truth is that film's no different than any other business in the world, which is that you need to be prepared to spend money to make money. You have to spend money to put yourself in position to make a bigger play. The question always becomes is, is this the type of project that's worthy of spending additional funds on because there is a bigger play? There is a longer gain to be had. And that's the question that's so hard for so many producers in independent film to sort of answer especially if they've exhausted, let's say, 95% of their, their budget, just getting them to the festival door. Yeah, and that's like you just mentioned about exhausting your budget. We, we won't go too far into it, you know, because uh, we've got a lot to talk about tonight. But that's one of the places where we've, we consistently see the under-budgeting below the line. It's just, you know, are you preparing yourself for, you know, the festivals, the marketing, the branding, you know, I think there's this huge expectation that, you know, your film's going to sell, period. And then once it quote unquote sells, then the buyer will do all of the work, right? All the marketing, all the branding, all the selling of your film. So filmmakers just leave that out. And it's like, no, sorry to say that 99% of the independent films that are made are not being sold, right? It's not not, not being picked up. I didn't say not being distributed on some, you know, streaming service or wherever. I mean, a lot of them are getting picked up that way, but not, they're not being sold. Right. So, you know, 
basically you have to do a lot of that work yourself. And if the money's not there, then how do you do that? Right. Right. You don't. Right. You have to go back to, to your equity investors or someone and try to figure out, do we want to spend more money to make this happen? Or do we want to let sleeping dogs lie and save for the next project and, and see where this goes with the conventional route? And I've heard this commentary a lot lately, which is, oh, everybody needs content. This is great for filmmakers mm-hmm. right now. The content is you know, such high demand. And that is true. And we've even said some things like that. But understand that the flip side of that is now the content world is an absolute red ocean. Uh, it that means your stuff's got to be even better. There's more competition than ever. And the fact of the matter is, is that if you were an independent film um, prior to 20, you know, 19, then, and, or 2020, I should say, then you had, you, you could carve out a blue ocean for yourself, meaning a place where there isn't blood in the water, where there aren't a ton of people competing for the same, you know, bag of money, essentially, Right. And so now yeah. your content really has to be great. Um, speaking of the people who have the bag of money, I think Netflix is is obviously leading the charge. I think they kind of run Hollywood and it's it's all happened through their ownership of data and uh, the way that they um, were sort of first to market with an idea as well and have a little bit of a head start. Who knows if they'll maintain that? I think there's a lot of leverage there with the HBO Maxes of the world, Peacock, and we'll see where streaming actually goes. But my guess is Netflix's just brand name value will, will be enough as long as they continue to create great content. But um, we do want to talk about their data a little bit. And what they've been able to do through analytics and through sort of watching viewer behaviors is to completely flip the film categorization and genre game on its ear. And we're not seeing um, the the indie film community responding to that, but I think it might be something that um, everyone pays attention to and starts doing and mirroring what Netflix is sending and pushing out to their customers and to their viewers and saying, hey, I want to mirror that as a filmmaker and make myself easier to acquire in terms of the content or the content I want to develop. And so, Nick, talk to us a little bit about what Netflix is doing with genre and categorization. Yeah, and I think this gets, you know, when it comes to the independent filmmaker, when you talk about, you know, ensuring that audiences see your work, especially if you actually do make it to any form of distribution, whether it's on Netflix or Amazon Prime, Hulu, any anywhere, you know, genre, I'll say firstly, is is very important and making sure that you're attaching the appropriate genres to your film uh, because, you know, you, you can get stuck, you know, giving yourself a genre, let's say it's just, let's say comedy, you know, there's a lot of comedies out there, right? And let's say you have a comedy that's, um, let's say it's a romantic comedy, mm-hmm. but you're just listed as comedy. Well, w- let's say the current, you know, let's call it the, the current zeitgeist or the, the, the current thing that's really booming is stand-up comedy. Right. So now your romantic comedy that's just called a comedy, right? Your, your genre is comedy is competing against all of these stand up comics, mm-hmm. right? In an area where people are looking for that. How are they going to find you? Right. It's, it's almost impossible to be found in that because they're not actually looking for you. They're looking for something else. 
but yours is a romantic comedy and it's not actually, you know, marked as that. So the people who are looking for romantic comedies or just romance won't find you. Right. Right. Because you were just listed as a comedy. So it's very important to make sure that you're, you know, not only listing that, you know, as you're, you're pitching your film or you're trying to get it distributed or, you know, the next step of it is, is courses. If you actually do get distribution making sure that you align it with the proper genre, but as you were just alluding to, Netflix has taken it a step further. And it's not just genre anymore, but there's this other categorization where if you go into the details of a film on Netflix, it'll tell you what the genre is. But it'll also say this this quick line that says, this movie is. Mm. Right? And I'm looking at a film right now, and it says, this movie is. So I'll tell you what the genres are. Right? So firstly, here's an example. This genre fits under comedies, but it's also under teen movies it's under late night comedies and it's under satires right right so i'll just give you those those genres if you look up genre online if you look in a you know film study book or whatever some of those won't show up like will you see late night comedy show up in a genre list if you just google genres probably not <laughs> that's right right yeah. it's covered under comedies right and then is teen movies a genre I don't know. I don't think so. Right. Like that's not the way that we knew it. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're not only changing the idea of what a genre is, but they've added this new categorization and under this movie is where this movie is not only a teen movie, a comedy, a late night comedy and a satire, but it's also being described as raunchy, irreverent and goofy. Mm. Right. The trifecta so now you have the hat these, trick of comedy. Yeah, exactly. So now you have these other, again, is metadata. Right. It's other characteristics associated with the content that Netflix and likely many other streamers are using to differentiate the content, but also to relate the content. Yeah. Right. So when you're making a film and this gets into some of that, you know, that comp idea, like what is your film a comparable for? It's not just comedy and it's not just romantic comedy. You know, it might have to be tearjerker romantic comedy. Yeah. Right. And now that tearjerker romantic comedy gives you the appropriate listing of comps, you know, that, that you'd actually need to put in a pitch deck or that you're going to pitch to a distributor or whatever. So, yeah, there's a whole other level, not only just they're changing the genres themselves, but they're also adding new metadata to the content that I think independent filmmakers need to be on top of. Yeah, I think it's great. And I see this playing out. I love that you mentioned comps, but I also see it playing out on the pitch deck or the perspectives so that as you're pitching your film or trying to, to, to um, raise capital for it, it really mirrors what we're seeing out in the wild today. And then also it's like on the comp side, just since you brought it up, it's, it's like you might not compare or want to compare your movie to a theatrical release anymore. You might want to do a comp that is literally off the streamer that you're targeting as a, as a way to play a little bit of inside baseball, play a little bit better chess game, say, okay, my movie's like Roma or my movie's like um, the marriage story, uh, which is a very depressing movie. Uh, <laughs> the, <laughs> right. My movie is like this or that. Right. And so now you can have the metadata in the prospectus and then your comp can be a streaming movie or streaming show. Yeah, that's the way to go. I think right now 
I mean, I'll just say it. I think that, you know, if you're an independent filmmaker and you're creating a comp or using comps, then your comps need only be associated with your lookbook, you know, when it comes to the tone of a film or, you know, again, these categorizations of genre and feel, you know, these other things, themes, things like that. I think that creating a comp from a financial perspective against a theatrical release, it just makes absolutely no sense, you know, in this current world that we're in. So, you know, basically, again, if you're, if you're making your pitch for the financial piece, you, you have to leave it out. And I will say this, I mean, let me give a little caveat to that. You have to leave it out for the savvy investor, yeah. right? So, you know, from, from our standpoint, we do, you know, micro investments and we see these things pop up in pitch decks all the time. And, you know, there it is, you know, this theatrical film and what it made in 1997. I'm like, how is <laughs> one, how is a theatrical film relevant? Right. And then how is 1997 relevant? Right. It's, it's not right to what we're looking at right now. So it's those types of things. It's like, you know, for the savvy investor, you know, that dog don't hunt. But I think that if you put it in there on a lookbook and you say, this is the type of, you know, theme we're going for, this is how it's going to look, how it's going to feel, you know, how it's going to sound, those types of things. I think that that's where it works. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And, uh, I guess we can wrap on, on this Andy talk. This has been fun by the way. And just my surprise, I just want to end on my shock and surprise. And there are factors that I'm probably almost certainly missing and don't fully understand, but I am a little surprised at how slow the big box theaters have been to pivot. As we mentioned early in the spring, at the very start of the pandemic, we told this audience that in many ways, theaters are a real estate business. And when you really think about how much land a theater owns and theater chains own across the country and across the world, you're talking about some of the most high-priced real estate that exists. In cities, if you live in a good city and a prosperous city, let's say, and you have a theater, they own acres and acres of land in these in these high priced cities. And I just am really surprised that they didn't leverage their real estate and pivot sooner to remain profitable and relevant. And instead, you had Walmart come in, who also understands real estate. You have Walmart come in and, and make a a, a drive-in theater. So how does Walmart beat AMC to the punch on this, right? How does Walmart beat Regal to the punch on this? Uh, how is it that you didn't move your concessions outside the building and then have events in the parking lot, which these parking lots are massive? Um, it just, it boggles the mind. I think every, I think there are so many CEOs that are waiting for stimulus checks, bailout checks. And then when they don't come, they're pretty much ready to lay off uh, labor in mass. And, um, you know, everything is sort of geared towards um, <laughs> making bonuses and, and, and making sure that um, I just think I, I don't want to go too deep into it because this is a film podcast, but uh, I don't know if capital is allocated very well. And I don't know how well these companies are run. 
Uh, and I think, and yeah, I, and let, I think the pivot on is super one. slow. I'm just shocked. Yeah, let me let me jump in on that one real quick, and you know, let me talk from you know the local experience, you know, around me, around mm-hmm. theaters. Uh, so you're right. There are theaters that have you know tons of real estate, and the parking lots, right, are just huge in themselves. That can be leveraged, mm-hmm. right? Um, but what I'm seeing in in my area a lot of is there's this idea that the the town center, the town square is the new way to go. So, you know, what that is, is basically, you know, it's a place where people live, eat, get entertainment, all within kind of like a tiny city. And this means that there isn't a lot of open real estate anymore. That real estate is leveraged by, you know, townhomes, condos, restaurants, you know, you're going to do layers of things, right? You basically you know, live up top, you can, you know, go to your restaurants and shops and everything mm-hmm. at the bottom. So, you know, we also have this shift that film that uh, theaters made to be more of an experience, right? So it's not just about, you know, you're, you're watching your film anymore, but now a lot of the theaters around me have the leather seats, they're reclining, you know, you can order your food when you go in there, they'll bring it to your seat. There's a bar outside, you know, you can go have a drink at the bar. You can take your, you know, your drink back there with you. Like they basically like tore down these places and then started making these town squares right. where the theater is just a part of the living experience. Right. So all of that stuff just recently happened in my area. So I don't know what's happening in, you know, across the country. You know, we'd love to hear from our audience, you know, if they're seeing the same thing, but there was a significant investment in the shift of the theater to this new model, that significant investment may actually be precluding them from putting out additional funds to now take advantage of this new environment. Yeah. Right. Secondly, the structure that they've created, right. So now they, they used to have a lot of land, but now they're saying, no, we want to be a part of a town, a town center, a town square. You no longer have that open parking. Now it's all parking garages. Right. So you no longer have any real estate other than the theater, right? So I know that basically like the two theaters that I normally would go to, that's the predicament they're right. in. They're, they're locked. They're locked in, right? By condos, restaurants, stores, all this stuff. They have no additional space to do anything like a Walmart is doing. So I think that that's potentially, again, I don't know what's happening or what happened in, you know, let's say mid to late 2019 or let's say all of 2019. I'm not sure if that is, you know, we're seeing that across the board, but we're definitely seeing that in this area. And that's really, you know, that's, that's kind of handcuffed them a little bit. Yeah. It could be what what's happened that, you know, you, you go back to your debt financiers, you go back to your VCs, you go back to other, um, competitors even in industry and see if they can float you alone. I mean, the legendary story of Steve Jobs getting Bill Gates to to loan him $50 million to keep Apple alive um, simply because Microsoft didn't want to be viewed as a monopoly and needed Apple to survive so they didn't get broken up. <laughs> you know, what a smart, genius chess move by Steve Jobs to understand that and then leverage that. Um, does AMC, does Regal, do any of these 
um, chains have a move like that. And again, if they do, why hasn't it been played? So we'll keep our ear to the ground on it. Of course we see, look, I tell you what, Nick, all the ad money that was in trailers and theaters, it's all gone to digital now. So <laughs> we'll see. I yep, think digital is sure. now 57% of all ad spend now. So 57, 58%. So we'll see where it goes. Of course, as I mentioned earlier, Fun conversation. I appreciated that you came on. I don't know how you were able to to murder or, or sort of remove Bane. He seems like a tough character, but I'm glad you did because the conversation was great. And um, <laughs> as, <laughs> as, as as always, uh, you can reach out to us on social media, on Instagram, on Twitter at underscore bonsai creative. You can reach out to Nick and I personally on Twitter. Uh, Nick is at Nicholas Bugs. I am at Flame in Your Heart. That is F A L M E I N. You better get that right. F L A L M E. I think I said that. Maybe I did. Let's try again. You can find me on Twitter at <laughs> Flame in Your Heart. F L A M E I N U R Heart. There you go. And then you can find us on Facebook <laughs> by simply typing in Bonsai Creative and we'll come right up. Where we really want you to go, though, and where all the action is, is our website, which is www.bonsai.film. There you can learn a lot more about us. You can see all of the podcast episodes, read our testimonials, um, join our creative community, read our wonderful blog post, and so much more. So, Nick, with that, give them the credo. Be better, <laughs> be creative, and be engaged. For independent film is for the people. <laughs> Thank you, Nick. Thank you, Bane. Guilty, guilty pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> well done. <laughs> Talk to you soon. Yeah, man. You take it easy. All right, brother. Talk soon. Right. Bye. Yes, sir. <laughs> Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Make It Podcast. To find more information about this week's topics, including links to relevant blog posts, projects, and indie creatives, please visit our website at www.banzai.film. If you haven't already, you can join our podcast community on Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice by searching for Make It Bonsai Creative, and the show will pop right up. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Bonsai Creative and Facebook by searching for Bonsai Creative. And of course, if you're looking to take a big step towards your filmmaking success, go to www.bonsai.film and click on Book Us to schedule a free discovery meeting and needs assessment. You have everything to gain. Until next time, be better, be creative, be engaged, and thank you for listening.